You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today on the show, we have Jared Brandt. Jared, along with his wife Tracy, own and operate the Donkey and Goat Winery in Berkeley, California. Enjoy my conversation with Jared. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. So I think the first thing is let's talk a little bit about your background and kind of what you were doing before you got into wine. So the real quick story is in 2001, I decided to leave technology was thinking about working for a friend of mine in Sonoma for a year just as a sabbatical. And my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, convinced me that France would be a better option because she wanted to live in France. So uh, connected with Eric Texier, was planning to take 2002 as a sabbatical from technology and moved to France and spent a year working for him. And fell in love with the process, came back to America, tried to find a job in the wine industry that was kind of a mix of, well, three things like reasonable pay, uh, a winery that had a philosophy that I could relate to and a place I could learn. And uh, it was really difficult to find any of those three um, in 2003. So we started Donkey and Goat in a friend's garage that year. We never, we didn't sell any wine. And then we formally started in 2004. Um, and that was kind of before the term natural wine even existed. Like we were doing what we do now, but we didn't have a term terminology for it. That's so interesting. And I saw your Twitter handle, how, uh, that's one indication that you are pretty early in tech that you got your name for the Twitter handle. Is there a story behind that one? Uh, I like to try, uh, new services and I knew the VC who funded, one of the original VCs who funded Twitter. Um, and so I grabbed Jared. The one funny thing about it is today, every once in a while, uh, our esteemed, uh, and I say that with a lot of sarcasm, president tweets me thinking I'm his son, uh, son-in-law. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, and uh, my paranoia about our current politics, I never tweet my real feelings back. Okay, but yeah. It hasn't actually <laughs> happened probably for a year now or two years. Like Someone must have taken that handle off of it. You must have forgotten it. I don't know. That's, um, that's really interesting. Now, being from kind of a tech background, before you got into wine, do you have any thoughts on how the 
wine industry has been kind of slow to adopt things like social media and technology as a whole. Obviously, you have done a great job with that, but that's something that's been kind of lacking. Maybe not so much in the past few years, but up until then. It, it, it's a really, I mean, it's an interesting question because if you go to Napa, a lot of the wineries there are owned by people who made all their money in technology. Right. And the way they made all their money is they broke all the rules. They pushed the envelope. They tested everything. They didn't, uh, they didn't believe that conventional wisdom was necessarily correct. And then they, then they buy an estate in Napa and they, they, all that goes out the window and they are very, very conservative in their approach to everything. Um, uh, and I, I can't totally understand it, but the way, way I see it more than anything else is like we, every year we try to learn by experiments and that's not necessarily technology. It's also, you know, uh, a science-based approach in a lot of ways. Like every year we'll try something different and we, we try to learn from it and, and not on every wine. Like we usually try to do five or six experiments a year. Um, and they can be little things like changing how we, we plan our, uh, uh, disgorgement of the pet nat, like the steps before the disgorgement or what we top the pet nat with. They can be big things. Like we have some slow ferment, fermenting vineyards and we're, we've been experimenting with adding on white wines. A lot of times they're nutrient deficient and we've been experimenting with like making a little bit on the skins, but blending that into the regular white wine, not to try to make a, like a very lightly orange wine, but instead to make sure that the wine has, has enough nut- nutrients to have a smooth fermentation and we do that every year, but like for whatever reason in Napa, you don't really see a lot of exp- experimentation. And they were very slow on social media. They're very slow on even e-commerce. And part of that is the, you know, the whatever the, the, re- the repeal of the 21st Amendment, if I have that right, gave state total control over alcohol and like shipping and alcohol is actually still tremendously difficult. But but parts of it, I just think that they, they made their money elsewhere and they're just very conservative and I can't totally explain it. Yeah. And so before we get into a little bit more about the wines, let's just first start with the name Donkey and Goat and the really interesting story about kind of how the name came about. Yeah. My wife and I just tell two different but interrelated stories. Okay. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, when we were in France, our neighbor had a donkey and a goat. and um, the donkey had been trained to do weed control on an organic, a vineyard that was becoming organic in Cote Roti. And the, uh, it was a very stubborn donkey. So the owner got him as a goat, as a companion animal. And when he first explained the story to him, I didn't understand. And I thought he was saying the goat was the girlfriend, which is one of the side stories. <laughs> My French wasn't very good, but I, you know, I was from San Francisco. I was like, whatever, I don't care. Um, and my, my wife also brings up the fact that every once in a while she was called my goat because I can get really stubborn about things and um, and, and honoring, and she sometimes evens out my keel. Um, so, uh, but when we came to America, we, we really struggled with the name. We didn't fully understand the critter wine phenomenon. Like if we did probably understand that, we might have had a, ended up with a different name. But like Yellowtail was a really popular brand at that time. Uh, so, but we, we love that kind of the yin and yang nature of, of, a, of a goat coming out of donkey and, and a, um, being a companion animal that, that smooths things out and rounds out the edges. And so we decided that was our name. Um, 
and you know over the years like the first couple of years we we probably really regretted it um because it was really difficult to sell like our style of wine in, in 2005 in california i mean it was on the verge of impossible um you know many years later um we have a brand and, and lots of people get the name wrong, but they don't get it totally wrong. Like they'll be, you know, a donkey and ass or something along <laughs> those lines, like all sorts of random things, but they remember it. And, you know, that's actually important. Um, I, I, many years ago, I read a study of, of someone walked down the line of people going into, I don't even think the event occurs anymore. Zap, which is the Zinfandel advocates and producers. They used to have a big tasting in Fort Mason. And he asked each person in line to name their favorite, uh, Actually, he asked each person in line to name all of their favorite Zen producers. And most people could not. I think the median was seven and the average was only four. Like people forgot the names of the wineries they, they liked. And so having a you know more distinct wine name is probably a good thing. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think when you're choosing a name, you want something that people won't misspell, that's kind of easy to remember, um, or kind of has that iconic feel to it. And, and Donkey and Goat hits kind of all those all those things. Uh, it's funny how you talked about just um, in the past about when you first started out, p- getting people to kind of taste your wine and getting people interested. And some people <laughs> heard about the name and they... Uh, just kind of dismiss it or they just based on the name. Um, and you've also talked about how Psalms in, in New York were kind of more progressive and kind of more um, eager to adopt your wine and things like that. So talking a little bit about just natural wine in general, there's just been so much press the past handful of years and, you know, all the way from mainstream articles like uh, New York times and wall street journal and things like that. Um, and then even kind of more food-focused magazines and online uh, blogs and things like that. But you know, what's your feeling now, kind of present day? Because these articles go back to like 2011, 12, and and then orange wine kind of started blowing up. But now, where we are, like, how do you, how are you looking at the space and uh, just in general? I, I mean, so the upside is. Like in 2006 or seven, no one had heard of natural wine, and particularly on the West Coast. And we, like, some years, there was one year where we sold more wine in Northern Europe than we did in California, um, which was kind of a odd and ironic. Um, Interesting. I think the the world, yeah, I mean, I think in 2007 and eight, Californians were looking for 14 and a half to 16 and a half percent super extracted wines that Parker loved. Um. And that wasn't our style. And the people who weren't interested in that style loved European wines. And like you often run up to a, the list is 100% European. We don't do any Americans. And I was like, well, like you should, I don't know. I, don't, I always reacted negatively to it. I probably is the easiest way to say it. I, I think fads in the wine business come and go. Um, like orange wine was really hot around 2010. And then there was an article in Forbes magazine how Takati was better than orange wine. Um, and uh it like fell off the map for a while and now it's super hot again i think that whole you know back and forth of or uh and like pet nat was really trendy then it wasn't now it's really trendy again and natural wine's really trendy i from my perspective i hope people make the wine that they love to make 
like the wine business is not a great business. Like if you want to make money, there's lots of other better businesses. And particularly if you're in the Bay Area, I mean, technology is, you know, night and day a better business, no matter, no matter what, what anybody says, just because your margins are much higher, much, 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 much higher, right? Like you write software once. And if you can sell it a billion times, you only had the only had it right at once versus the wine business where you actually have to make every bottle you sell. Um, but um, I hope people just go into wine and make what they love and, and then follow their their passion on on what they want to make. If, if they want to make a super clean, uh, inoculated uh, Sauve Blanc that, you know, that has perfect grassy uh, and cat pee notes, I'm, I'm happy for them if that's what they love to make. If they want to try to make a sulfur-free wine um, and they're, they're into like off flavors and so they have high VA and mouse, like, for them still if that's if that's what they want to make is if they're chasing someone else's trend or dream like i think that's really sad and it's too bad it's it's, it should be i think this business should be about your your individual or a winemaker's individual passion and i've always thought like you know uh we we're too old in the natural wine business to be hipsters or or like that a lot of the wine the natural wine like is i don't know kind of hipster driven but, uh, but I, I don't actually care. Like I, I just want to make the wine that I love to drink, and that uh, other people. I, I hope I find enough people that enjoy it that we can make a successful business, and, and that's kind of like that's my end of the day goal. Yeah, and you've talked in the past about critics and sometimes uh, winemakers getting bonuses for actually achieving a higher score, and how that kind of feels almost soulless and kind of taking some of the magic out of it. Um, and one of your early wines, I forget which one it was, but it received, a, a, I forget, you can tell me, but 70 or 80 something. And you were most proud of that one because, you know, you did it in your style and it's, it doesn't you know matter about putting a number on a wine in that type of sense. Yeah. Um, uh, I think it was James Suckling of uh, Wine Spectator. Someone of the Wine Spectator gave uh uh, Brousseau Chardonnay, a 78, and they said it was lemony. And I don't remember the exact description, but the, I think the description was actually a really accurate description. And he he didn't like acid. like uh, And his uh, it, the numeric scores are really ironic in the uh, wine business because you can't, uh, like, if you take a scientific approach, they're not, no, no taster i know um would allow their taste to be evaluated scientifically like taste 100 wines give them all scores and 100 percent blind or whatever i don't know what the right way to do it would be um like when i've talked to tasters about doing some testing of their tasting ability um they've all said no and i think there are some great tasters out there like i think robert parker literally had probably one of the best palates and when i say palate i mean the ability to taste something and remember it not not yeah. like it or not like it but that that very distinct ability, um, but I didn't. I, I never agreed with his scores. But actually, when I, I I haven't read the Wine Advocate, and I don't think he's actually tasting anymore in a long time. But um, I did tend to agree with his notes. I mean, I, I thought his notes were really good. But the the translating like uh, something that's very personal into a number is is very. Uh, I think as long as consumers understand that, which most consumers I don't think do. It, it's it's fine, but I think most consumers like you still see lots of shelf talkers when you you go to like 
a Whole Foods or a Trader Joe's says, oh, this wine's 98 points for blah, blah. And I don't think most cons- consumers realize that it's just it's just a number that someone pulled out of, you know, their opinion of the wine. It doesn't represent what the wine is. Um, and I think we should celebrate low, low scores. I, yeah. I was very happy with that score. Yeah, and, and I think that speaks to, you know, what I'm trying to do, and I know others are as well, is be able to tell the stories behind wine brands and winemakers and wines themselves. And I think people actually could get a lot more enjoyment out of, let's say, listening to a podcast and and cracking open a, a bottle of wine or even sharing it with friends and, and being able to kind of listen to the history and and to kind of you know, be able to kind of connect with that story in a way. Um, and you mentioned the acidity. Now, you've talked a lot about how high, higher acid wines, kind of lower ABV, go better with food. And that's uh, one of the things that you strive for in your winemaking. Talk a little about that and, and how that's really resonated, I think, with a lot of people, especially younger people. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because a lot of times we'll we'll have better inroads at at restaurants with the chefs than the psalms, um, because chefs get that 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 requirement of acidity. I think getting the alcohol for a second, but the acidity, um, a lot of the enjoyment in a food is like the offsetting of flavors and um, or components. So if you have uh, you know a high high fat uh, dish like uh, i can be one of our old interns gave me a, a box full of uh he he forages morels and i made a carrot morel uh pasta but it had cream as the sauce cream and um and the cream is fatty and if you take that cream and you have it with a really acid driven chardonnay it, it offsets the the two flavors which i think is really really nice so let's get into a little bit of the winemaking. So the first thing to mention is the manifesto, which is posted on your website, which started as an email. And we're going to link that in the show notes. But, you know, you go into kind of your philosophy and some people think of natural wine as nothing added, nothing taken away. And there's so many nuances that go along with that. So you, you talked about a little bit in the uh, in this piece about how you rely on taste to pick instead of bricks you talk about racking and a lot of other kind of geeky wine things. So um, let's get into that a little bit and uh, kind of what's or anything that, that has changed since you wrote that. I mean, a, a lot of it has stayed the same. So we, we're not programmatic winemakers. Like we don't say we're going to pick this vineyard when it's, you know, 3.3 pH and 22 and a half bricks. Um, Mm-hmm. We do actually believe in tasting, and every year is different. And like, like we want to celebrate the vintage to some extent, right? Like if it's a if it's a warmer vintage, our ABV, uh, our ABVs, our alcohol levels are going to go up because warmer vintages you get riper faster, but the flavors aren't where you want them to be when you first get that sugar accumulation. And if it's a colder vintage, they're they're going to be lower. It's the exact same result of that. So we we try to celebrate as much as possible um, the vintage. Um, when I go to the vineyard, I used to take a uh, refractometer like I, so I could measure the sugars. And I, I like probably five or six years ago, I just gave up because I found that even even though I, I would espouse that I didn't care about um, alcohols, I was really focusing on flavors, I would always look and I, I knew that made 
even though I was conscious of trying not to make a decision based on looking, I knew that deep down I was impacted by that number and I was trying to get away from it. Um, so I think that's kind of stayed the same. Um, we try not to be prescriptive. Like over the years, some years we rack um, our uh, stone crusher, which is a skin fermented Roussan. Some years we don't. But we don't, at the beginning of the year, say we're going to rack it. We taste it. If we think it needs to be racked, we usually just rack a barrel or two and then taste that barrel again in a few weeks and see if, if, if we are happy with it. And racking, just to give you context, is taking uh, is for, it's taking wine out of one barrel and putting it either back into that barrel or another barrel after you've cleaned out the lees. And the lees are dead yeast cells and, you know, skins and other components from the grapes that made it in and they fall out over time the thing that we don't love about racking is it tends to give you a little bit more uh oak component because you have more of the surface area of the barrel that's uh open to oak and then there's something that leaving it on the leaves you you get some um i'm gonna blank on the word right now but the the interaction and the decomposition of the yeast cells gives you a mouthfeel that we tend to like. So we're not really, we're not, we're not necessarily opposed to racking, but we don't do it prescriptively. Like lots of wineries, I don't know if that happens anymore, but 10 years ago you'd go to and they say, oh, we rack it at six months and we rack it 18 months for, and we have it in barrels for two years. And like that just ignores the vintage. That might've been the perfect plan for, you know, 1985, but in 1986, that might have been a horrible plan. And it just seemed to us a very, very wrong approach to winemaking. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you've talked a lot about additives in the past on a couple other podcasts and different content. So we won't touch on it too much, but I, th I think you mentioned there are 270 additives that uh, can be added to wine. And part of your philosophy was you didn't want to have anything in the winery that your young daughters could get into and potentially uh, be really, really harmful besides sulfur, which you brought up that, you know, you use sparingly. And also it has that really, really strong smell. So uh, you talked about the Velocin and the Mega Purple, but you know, and this subject has kind of been beat to death, death, but is there anything you wanted to touch on there that hasn't been brought up in the past? Uh, I, I mean, the only thing that maybe my older age is like, uh, I've become maybe more, uh, I don't know the right way, way to say this, but like, it's, it's easy to make fun of mega purple, but if someone wants to make a really deep, dark colored red wine, I'm like, I, I'm not, I'm not opposed to, I'm probably less opposed to additives if they're rational. The stuff that is harmful, like that's toxic, it's a totally different subject. Um, not that I'm interested in using it, but if someone, Mega Purple is actually made from dried grape skins. Um, mm -hmm. So like as, as an additive, I may be less judgmental and more open to the ideas. I, I kind of laugh that the, the natural wine world totally hates Mega Purple. And of all the uh, all the additives out there, that's the one that I'm like, eh, you know, not my thing. But who would like if I wanted to make a really dark wine, like you know, you could use uh, Grand Noir, uh, the grape, to add to it, or you could use Mega Purple, and and yeah, I don't know, I don't know that either is necessarily worse. Again, not my thing. That's my my, but I, I may be a little bit less judgmental than I, I was when I first started. 
Yeah. So, and back in 2012, you were on a podcast. You had talked about using some pine resin in very, very small quantities as a experiment to kind of looking for uh, sulfite alternatives. How did that one turn out? And are there any other experiments that you've embarked on in that realm? Well, in 2012, we didn't really make very many sulfur-free wines, and we've, we've been making more. So our, our sparkling wines um, to date have all been without sulfur additives, and we're now making a Syrah that's without sulfur. We've experimented. We experimented with pine resin. It didn't work, our experiment, but that may have been our experiment not working. Maybe there's something there. It's funny because I was talking about uh, Retzina the other day, which is um, – the pine resin in Retzina was originally used as a preservative. Right. Um, there's some uh, mushroom-based or mushroom-derived products from Switzerland that's a sulfur alternative right now. Um, that a lot, I, I see people using. I can't remember its name, but I haven't seen uh, – just because something can be found in, na- na- uh, in nature doesn't mean it's safe. And plenty of, I mean, it, it, the mushrooms are being used as antibacterial, antimicrobial, so they're clearly toxic. And it's not clear to me that switching a sulfur, which is also fine. I mean, it's found in the ground. We have a cabin in Wyoming, and there's a sulfur spring nearby. So you can find sulfur naturally. Switching from sulfur to a uh, mushroom that's also toxic is not clearly a good trade-off to me. Right. Um, so we haven't experimented with that. I sometimes wonder if we we should spend more time like thinking through like is there a way we could do uh, like a more traditional fining to get some uh, and be able as a result be able to do some uh, more sulfur free wines. Like I've had some Chardonnays uh, from Chablis and from Jura and. Uh, the one from the Chablis, at least he had experimented with egg white fining. And uh, I mean, most people think of fining as taking out uh, bacteria. I mean, not bacteria, about taking out particles. But egg whites are actually an antimicrobial. Um, they, I mean, they literally surround the yolk, so, uh, mm-hmm. so it's protected from uh, you know bacteria. And I've... I've like, I would have never thought of fining a, a Chardonnay with a egg whites. Like, it not even in the realm of my thought process. And I, I wonder if there's maybe some interesting things to try there. Uh, but that's not been like these days I've been really focused on trying to figure out how to make better pet gnats. Like that's my biggest experiment these days. Um, I'm more focused on that. Like take, take the beauty of champagne, take the, the methodology of pet gnat and see if you can't come with something closer to like, like finer bubbles that you get in champagne, but have them occur in a pet nap. Yeah, that's really interesting. And way back in 2012, you had made the comment that you probably wouldn't put any sulfur um, in your wines had you been maybe just selling them to Berkeley and San Francisco, but you shipped a lot at the time and and still do, I'm sure, overseas and to different areas. So it's interesting how that kind of came to fruition too with the pet nap being sulfur-free and... um, and, and ramping up uh, a lot more in California, um, as opposed to, as you mentioned, Europe and New York, which I'm sure still uh, do, do a great amount of business. But um, speaking to just how you are located in Berkeley, um, what are the kind of the pros and cons of being more detached from, let's say, Napa or Sonoma? Um, and 
you know, obviously there's benefits to that as well. I know when I first found out about Donkey and Goat, you know, first was the name that kind of, I was like, wow, that's really cool and kind of interesting. And then boom, I immediately looked it up and saw the website with these, you know, beautiful colors and a lot of clear bottles showing the, you know, the reds and the, the orange and yellow. And, and then once I found out it was in Berkeley, that was just a whole nother thing that kind of blew my mind. So as far as being there, what has it been like? And especially now that there's other uh, kind of producers that have popped up near you. Yeah, I mean, uh, Brock Sellers, uh, Blue Ox, Wind Chaser, and Vinka Minor are all in our block now. And when we first moved to this block, we were the only winery on the block. Um, I think initially we were really isolated from Napa, both physically, because we were not in Napa, but also socially, uh, because we were so... Like we just didn't have friends. Like we didn't come from the wine business. We weren't in the wine business before we started donking goat, and so we didn't. Uh, just didn't know there many people in Napa. We have a lot more friends in Napa now in Sonoma. I mean, since we've been in this business for a while, and so I think we're we get more ideas. I think both the wine industry has really shifted. Like there weren't people. Or I there were actually a few people. I just didn't know them. But Napa has gone through. And probably more so Sonoma, but Napa's even gone through a, a revolution. There's a lot more producers now. Like Steve Mathiason's a friend, and he's trying to create very low alcohol, beautiful wines. And so there's a lot more synergy than there used to be for us. But at the same time, we still, mainly because of social connections, there's, we still probably get a lot of our ideas, or I get a lot of ideas from experimenting on how to on my experiments from from our friends in Europe. Like we spent. Uh, a few days in Champagne and in France in February, we went to La Dive, which is a big natural wine uh, festival um, uh, and tasted some brilliant wines and came back with some really interesting ideas. It's always interesting to me too. Like we experimented, there's a producer whose name I'm going to blank on, but all of his, is in, he's in the Southern Rhone and like Taval and stuff. And every red he makes is 20% Claret. And I, I think his reds are brilliant. Um, uh, but like it's, it was fun. Like when we were blending this year, like I have Claret, so we experimented <laughs> and it didn't work for us. Um, which I, it's, it's always interesting to see. Like, I don't know what about, I mean, he's got Grenache, Mavedra and Claret and we have Grenache, Mavedra and Claret among other things. Um, and his wines had a, a certain uniqueness to them that I found really intriguing. And when we tried those blends here, we didn't get it. I wish I got more ideas from America, but I'm also, you know, older, not as much of that, that scene. My, um, my cellar master, a guy named Sean Hall is, I have no idea how old he is, but he's 30 ish, 29 ish. And, um, he's much more into the young natural winemaker scene. And he's bringing a bunch of ideas that I'm really excited about to the winery. So maybe he'll be our connection. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you mentioned Steve Mathiason. A lot of people have seen the movie. It's part of the Psalm series, I guess. I think there's a couple movies that came out and uh, just kind of showing, portraying that process and kind of that movement. I know he's making some wines for a new startup over in Napa, Ashes and Diamonds, right when you first get into Napa. So there's there's definitely some changes happening 
Did you have any thoughts on the In Pursuit of Balance group that, you know, Raj Parr was also in that movie? And it's, it's a, I know it's a super controversial topic, um, but did you have any views there? I mean, I used to joke with Raj that it, it was In Pursuit of Marketing. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, I think, I think his overall vision was really like a very, like when, in a, when In Pursuit of Balance first started, there was still a lot of celebration of alcohol. Like people... I mean, I would get it occasionally. Like people come into our tasting room and they're like, "What do you have over fifteen percent?" Because that's the only wines I like. And I'm like, "Well, wow, you got to go somewhere else." I mean, like, I, just sorry. Like, but there's like that that notion that alcohol equates to intensity, equates to great wine, was still prevalent. And I think Raj is very interested in nuanced wine, um, and his knowledge of Burgundy. I mean, it 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 translated i'm not much of a like you should ever do rules by numbers right yeah um like saying i don't remember the, the rules for it but you had to have an alcohol under 13 or 13 5 or something i don't remember um and i think like you know occasionally i've uh you taste a, a brilliant wine that's labeled 12 5 but you're like huh I think the alcohol is a little higher than this you measure it and it turns out that it was just labeled 12 5 it wasn't really 12 5 um mm-hmm. It's just uh, particularly in Burgundy, you'll see like it's not not the case anymore. But it used to be that the main label was was printed without a date, and there was a little I don't know what you call it, a little top label that had a date on it. So they they would mass print their labels for like five years to save money, and then they would just print the date dates um, on that little label at the top. But one of the things that does is means that alcohol is not really related to the year. So so I wasn't really into the concept of having numbers rule it, but I do think the goal was that, that you should try to make balanced wine was because it, it's it's a really novel and and worthy goal. Like, um, I think if you, it, it fits my aesthetic very well. Like when I think of when I taste a wine, like um, we try to make more acidic, lower pH wines for a lot of reasons, but sometimes, you know, a wine is in its right place with a higher pH, and it's it's the, the balance is there for me, and that's what I always look for. I'm not really interested in um, trying to make uh, out, what I would call out of balance wines. Like it, and balance is a funny thing because when you think about it, it's it's balancing things where there's not going to be necessarily a straightforward one-to-one relationship so an example would be if you have uh alcohol at 13.5 the wine could taste alcoholic even though it's probably fits like in the pursuit of balance this concept of balance if the other flavors aren't at the right point um there got there's a uh winemaker and a, a wine scientist clark smith who, uh, if you read his book or you talk to him, uh, um, he talks a lot about in person how if you're doing uh, alcohol removal, it's like a harmonic frequency. So he he sold his company to Wine Secrets, I think. But he would tell me that like uh, CFOs would say that you know you need to remove the alcohol to 13.9, and that was because of a tax reason. It was much cheaper to have a wine under 14%. But at 13.9, it would taste horrible. But if you removed a little bit more alcohol at 13.7, it would taste beautiful. But then if you removed a little bit more like at 13.5, it would taste out of balance and alcoholic again. And I think that that's, that's, that's like when you think about balance, you, you, you can't prescribe the numbers. You have to actually taste the wine and, and really try to pursue it that way.
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of mislabeling that happens when labels are printed ahead of time. And I've heard the point about how you can have kind of a more big and bold style that still might be in balance where you don't taste that burn and you don't have that alcohol kind of taste at the back of your throat. And then on the other side of the coin, you can have kind of a wine that's made in a more natural style, but this doesn't have that the fruit and just doesn't kind of have the flavor. Um, but let's let's get into some of your wines because that's that's the amazing thing and that w- what you do so well is you 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 have that flavor and you have that balance while you know making it in the style the way you do. Um, and so you you touched on a couple of them, um, but the Pet Nat, the one I always recommend to people is the Gallivanter. Um, someone who, who maybe is new to the brand and, and they want to start out with something. But let's hear from you and, and hear about some of the, the more recent ones that you're excited about. So as I said before, I'm really excited about the Pet Nat. Um, we started making Lily's Pet Nat, which is my name for my nine-year-old Lily, um, 10 years ago. And we named it after her because she was born um, uh, uh, during the first bottle agent, I guess would be the right way to say it. And it's a Chardonnay-based pet nat um and we've gotten we've gotten better every year with it um pet nats are difficult because you're trying to to try to predict the future when you make them like you're trying to predict you have to leave enough sugar in there that you'll get the bubbles you want but not too much sugar it'll be sweet um and i think we fine-tuned that over the years and and every year we get better um and it's a really interesting wine for me too because it's a wine like I always think of wine evolving very quickly in barrel, but in bottle not so quickly. And Lily's, like when we first disgorged it this year, to me it tasted like it had a lot of baby fat on it. Like there was just it was sweet, a little bit sweet still. The bubbles weren't where I wanted them, but but after like three months and after being disgorged, it's radically changed and it's much closer to the wine that I wanted it to be. So we're trying all sorts of different things in, in the world of pet nats. Traditional champagne, uh, non-vintage champagne, often was made as a Solara, which is a way you make sherry. Like each year you use some of, of your base wine, but you add back to the base so you always have a base wine. Um, Jacques Solos has been a master at marking it. Like He has a Solara series that are hundreds of dollars a bottle. But if you talk to a lot of other champagne man of makers they've been doing it that's that's really kind of old school traditional champagne making um and that was it's part of the movement to vintage champagne is, is what's discouraged that more than anything else um, there's other reasons but so we're experimenting with doing some things about that and i think um, we make something called brut nat which is a, a chardonnay pinot meunier blend so traditional champagne grapes that we're not doing vintage on um, and we're not doing vintage because we're, we really are trying to make it as though it's um, trying to get a uh, to make the best wine each year that we possibly can and finding that having some age on some of the components of the wine is actually really great. Um, every year for me, uh, like I love our, our someone's going to have one of our wines. I buy fruit from Steve Mathias and our Linda Vista Chardonnay. That, that vineyard is uh, Davis Clone 4. Um, Steve does a very masterful job on just the right amount of vineyard management. Um, and it, the, that wine is a wine I, I can return to almost any night. Like I can have it. I had it with friends last night with pizza. I had a socially distanced, uh, I was invited over. So a socially distanced dinner and 
the the pizza was um, we, there was one pizza in particular that had figs and prosciutto, and I would have never thought the Chardonnay would go well with it, but the fat of the prosciutto was set off the Chardonnay in a really brilliant way, and the Chardonnay, uh, the acid of the Chardonnay made the prosciutto taste like a little bit saltier in a way that was really pleasurable. Um, my Tracy's been making our Pinot Gris, which is a skin contact, but a really complex manufacturing process, skin contact. So like we always say it's on the skins for five days, but it, it's really, that's a, just because it's too hard to explain, but since it's a podcast, I can actually explain it. We, we just stem the fruit and put it into concrete. And then based on experience and taste, starting day two, she starts pulling barrels of juice out of the, the concrete uh, fermenters. And so by day seven, um, it's almost no juice. It's just grapes in there. And so you get this weird and wonderful complexity of flavors over the course of the days in the different barrels. And then she blends them together to make the wine. And one of the things that she's found, which I think is really pleasurable, is the hard press of that wine. So the, the, this kind of the, the second half of the press cycle, um, she keeps separate and she puts in magnums, but it's a really unique and really fun wine. Um, it's just labeled, it's the Pinot, uh, Pinot Gris, but with a, uh, it's called hard press. And I think it's, it's a really fun wine. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm getting long winded here. No, no, that's, that's great. And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you kind of started out more with the Rhone varietals and kind of those, the GSM, but, uh, you know, you've branched out into so many other different varietals. I'm looking here at just the, the Merlot, the still crazy Merlot, and I'm seeing the 2014 uh, Blankman Vin Merlot. And uh, just the differences in the bottles there. So the still crazy spelled in a, in a unique way, having that clear bottle and then kind of the more traditional Merlot uh, bottle style itself. And then with the other Merlot having kind of the non-traditional bottle style with the darker uh, shade of bottle. What's the difference there of of why you chose kind of those the bottles and the shading? So still crazy. Crazy is a just to tell you is a bootling, which is a dialect in the Anderson Valley. There's a great dictionary. Oh, okay. It's about a two thousand word dialect. It's it's pretty well researched, which is I think because uh, language researchers love to hang out in um, Anderson Valley. And it's a, I don't want to say it's dead yet, but it, it's effectively dead though you can find there's a dictionary of it and it's hilarious to read um crazy is a term that meant someone who thought they saw god um the k-r-a-i-s-e-y and we leased a vineyard in anderson valley where we had merlot on it and um we leased it for the chardonnay the lease ended and we weren't able to to keep the vineyard many years ago but we that first year we made we didn't know what to the first year we leased a vineyard, we tried to sell the Merlot because it wasn't our thing. And we, I got exactly zero calls. Like I kept lowering the price and advertising. You know, I started out like $2,500 a ton. And I think the last ad I, I wrote was $900 a ton. And no one, I never got a single call because people aren't looking for Merlot in Anderson Valley. And so year two, we were like, well, we're, we're paying to farm this. We might as well use it. And so we, we made a crazy, which was a, a white Merlot, so a pressed Merlot but it's a sparkling wine and it's still crazy. It was, was the same wine, but not sparkling. It's still, Interesting. A, yeah. 
So in terms of the bottle for that wine, uh, we had this great um, tasting room slash direct-to-consumer manager, Aaron, who, who left us at the beginning of this year to travel around the world, but her, her travels got short by uh, cut short by COVID. But she was a big advocate of a lot of our colors are super pretty, and you should let consumers see the colors. So she really pushed for us to consider more and more clear glass, and that's, that's why uh, Still Crazy is in clear glass. We often, just for economics and ease, um, we tend not to do a lot of wine in traditional. Like we tend to use the Burgundian shape because that's the most of our wines we put into Burgundy shaped bottles. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Merlot that we're going to release next year will be in a traditional Bordeaux shaped bottle. Though we make a tiny bit of Napa Cab, and it's also in a Bordeaux, Bordeaux bottle. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the clear glass. I think it's super, super pretty. Um, but uh, you spend time like – if you read old winemaking books, they'll talk about how clear glass is bad because uh, light impacts wine so much. And I, exactly. I, don't know, I don't know if I really believe that, but you know, spending time in, in Champagne, a lot of the sellers there have very special uh, LED lights that uh, block out – don't have the full spectrum of light in them intentionally because they're so worried about it. So maybe there's something there. Um, but it's, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's really beautiful to look at just the, the clear bottle and the the color and just, it, it kind of has a lot of sensory uh, things to me when you look at it, which is really cool. But like you said, the downside is light, which may or may not be true, but also just kind of the more traditional bottling, I guess would, make more sense in that, in that way as you explained it with the burgundian style now moving on to the cab that you mentioned talk a little about that because that's you know something where it's most of the you know most of napa and when people think of wine that's kind of the one varietal they think about oftentimes I, you know sometimes it could be zinfandel and merlot or something but talk about your cab and and the differences between maybe some someone that's had kind of the more traditional style and the differences. Yeah. I mean, the vineyard is really cool. The vineyard is um, dry farmed and not tilled. So it's, it's an old school vineyard. I think it's been like uh, 10 years since it's been watered and five years since it's been tilled or something along those lines. Um, so we just want the, the, the wine to express itself. We have a pretty long, uh, we pick it when we think it tastes good. So usually yeah, you know, it's ending up around 13% alcohol, 12, 12, 13. Um, and a lot of people blame the higher alcohols in Napa on rootstock. I think it might, might have more to do with watering. Like if you water a lot, um, you irrigate a lot, um, you uh, kind of slow the phenolic ripening, but the, the, the phenolic being the flavor ripening to some extent but you still have plenty of sugar ripening. Um, and so you get the higher alcohols. I also think that like uh, Napa for a while, I think this has changed a lot in general, but was very aggressive on leaf pulling. Um, and that, you know, that's leaf pulling is a very, very important in areas where you have a lot of moisture um, so that you can protect the grapes from rot. You get air circulation around them. One of the downsides of leaf bowling, though, is you get more direct sun on the grapes and you get uh, some desiccation. You get some evaporation, effectively, on the grapes. And so you'll, you'll start to increase, decrease the uh, water 
and juice in there and increase the, the resulting your, your sugar percentage will go up. So this vineyard is very, very um, old school farming. Um, so I, I like it. This last year we fermented it in um, a like 1600 liter roughly uh, clay vessel. And we chose the clay vessel because one, we found that the clay is really, really good about how, for whatever reason, keeping a very constant temperature. And we wanted a, a long, slow fermentation. You know, we were hoping 70, 75, not trying to get up to 90, um, and not having to do lots of, we don't pump over, we do punch down by hand, but we didn't want to have to punch down a lot. Like we wanted it to be gentle. Um, so, uh, so long, slow fermentation, you know, we, we tend to be, we tend to taste stems when they come in, and if they taste reasonably good, we will do uh, a decent amount of stem inclusion. The downside of stem inclusion is it, it raises pH, so we're always cognizant of that. But cab usually has a, a good pH when we pick it anyway. And um, then we 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 press it and barrel age it, and we uh, you know to to a certain extent our more typical Napa. We we don't have any new oak in our winery ever. I can honestly say I've never bought a new oak barrel. I thought about it because I want to get some. Uh, I thought about buying a new barrel, but it wouldn't have been oak anyway. But we, we get one-year-old barrels, but we put the cabinet in some one-year-old barrels, and so it definitely has an oak influence. But we're trying to make – like if you have the opportunity to taste like a 76, 77, 78, 79, there's a lot of brilliant wines coming out of Napa in my opinion. And we're trying to kind of go back to that style, so lower in alcohol – more balanced, going back to that word, you know, in pursuit of balance, and but with clear like varietal characteristics, like make it clearly Cabernet. So that's and we added some, a little bit of Merlot, which is very traditional. But. Yeah, and we're going to link the the tech sheet and some of the information here in the show notes. But you have a lot of information, which is really cool too for people who want to click and download the PDFs. Uh, it looks like this wine's right around 50 cases. Now, is this pe- particular wine only available for people on the mailing list? I noticed it wasn't on the, the front page of the main shopping area. Yeah, a lot of our wines, we have a, a very active and, and awesome, and I applaud every one of them. They've allowed me to, to, to do this uh, wine club. And a lot of our wines, our wine club is now to the point where a 50 case, a 75 case production only goes to the wine club. Um, right. So we often will release a wine. We often will have a case or two left over, or twenty cases that we'll have in the tasting room. Um, but either you have to be in the club, or you know, the next best opportunity is to be in the mailing list. Um, this whole COVID world has has I don't know if it'll stay, but it's changed our business. We, uh, you know, our tasting room closed, so that went away. But our, our uh, our mail order, like our internet orders and our home delivery, we never offered home delivery before, but shot through the roof. Um, and so a lot of uh, what we used to do, like on 100 case wines, you'd often, we'd sell a few cases to a few distributors around the country, but even those now are often just going all off the mailing list. Yeah, and we're going to link uh, all this stuff in the show notes here so people can find the Instagram and, and different ways to connect with uh, with you. Um, now, the last question I wanted to kind of close with is just going back, you know, we just talked about cabs and kind of the older influence and that, that older style of what Napa used to be. 
um, coming out of Napa and Sonoma. Now, are there any particular wines that you like that are more in the traditional style? Like if you are going to have, let's say, a steak and you want maybe a bigger cab or, or I don't know, any other type of food? Or maybe the answer is just no. <laughs> um, generally, I mean, I, I sometimes think of bigger wines as fireplace wines. Like I actually like okay. I think steak uh, is great with um, a high acid red because steak okay. has a fair amount of fat in it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I think of like after you go skiing and you're like you're at a lodge and you're sitting in front of a fireplace and you're you know maybe your toes are still cold because your boots were a little too tight or something. I sometimes like bigger reds then. I you know in terms of uh, so. I, I find those, you know, like sometimes those are really great. I, I haven't really, I tend to gravitate towards cab more than um, like Zen is often a really big grape by wine. But, you know, there's there's definitely some big Zins out there that I find super interesting. Um, Tracy is much less tolerant of high alcohol than I am. So, um, but Tracy doesn't really like to ski that much. So, you know, that's why I can have them in front of a fireplace in a ski lodge because they'll just be me and the kids and me. Yeah, and you've talked about the cocktailization of wine, and people have talked about this over the years, and it kind of reminds me of curling up in front of the fireplace there, as you mentioned, after going skiing with like a whiskey or a bourbon. Yeah, like a cocktail at that moment too. Yeah, and then you could replace that with a huge red with high alcohol, and it's kind of almost the same thing to me. It has those same characteristics, actually. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think they actually are very similar. Um I mean, like some people talk about high alcohol wines as porch pounders, and for me, the, it's kind of the exact opposite. On a warm day, when you're sitting out on a porch, I actually want something lower in alcohol. I, I somewhere have a cocktail book that's all low alcohol cocktails. It's like 50 low alcohol cocktails, and um, I even find those really enjoyable. I think it's called Day Drinking, maybe or something. I don't remember the name of the book. Okay. Um, but it's about cocktails that, like, they're like a lot of them are sherry-based cocktails that are, you know, they're, they're very you know, they're much more on the beer, natural wine levels of alcohol, not in the typical cocktail levels. Right. And lastly, are there any varietals that you haven't worked with that you would like to or planning in the future? So we, um, back to your your statement about Rhone's, we planted um, all the Chateauneuf to Pop varietals. They're not all available yet mm-hmm. for us. I mean, they're growing or like year two mm-hmm. on some of them. So we, I want to make a really traditional Chateauneuf to Pop Blanc. And then the one varietal that we don't have right now that I would love to make um, is we spent a bunch of time a couple of years ago in the Languedoc and um, Carignan Blanc, which doesn't exist as far as I know in America, is a super interesting varietal. You know, really, really pretty, high acid, does really well in warmer climates, drier climates, which, you know, describes California. Um, and I'd really like to try working with that. But Interesting. Either have to be a space clone or maybe someone will bring it in for now. Interesting. And as far as Zinfandel, as far as I've seen you, you haven't made a Zinfandel before. What's the reasoning behind that? Don't really like it. I mean, I'll drink them occasionally. I think some of them are beautiful, but it's just not my, just not my thing. And it's definitely not Tracy's thing. That makes sense. Well, maybe uh, the customers out there can look forward to a couple of those uh, future wines that you talked about there that are still growing and that's uh it could be really interesting down the road well jared we really appreciate you coming on and um really appreciate your time and uh, look forward to the new and next exciting things coming out of donkey and goat yeah thank you very much 
Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.